This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam. So, you know, I think most people who come on this podcast, I would put into one of two different boxes. You got thinkers and you got doers. And anyone who knows anything about me or about this podcast knows that I think both are absolutely essential to a flourishing society. But this is really the first episode where I truly do not know where our guest belongs because she is, on the one hand, an absolutely voracious, inspiringly voracious reader, prodigious writer, tireless teacher. And on top of all of that, she's the founder and CEO uh, of one of the coolest startups on the planet called Interintellect. For my money, really the most exciting learning initiative in the world right now. She's an apex thinker-doer. She's Anna Gatt. And we're going to talk about, well, just that, the thinking and the doing of learning. So we've been talking about the book of Exodus uh, the last few weeks, which usually you just assume is like a total blast. And it is because you got political drama, you got murder, betrayal, miracles, redemption. You have brother fighting brother. You have kings and, and miracles. The Ten Commandments. I mean, anything you could possibly want in a screenplay. But anyone who's read the Bible knows that there's that moment that preachers and pastors and reverends and, and rabbis all dread, Exodus 22, where all of a sudden it's like the party's over. And here are the laws, right? And then from there, it's just like labor regulations, tort law, laws related to social justice, court procedures, and so on. And I think here is where most folks like check out usually, right? Like wake me up when we get back to stories in the book of numbers. Uh, but one of the things I, I truly love about the tradition of learning in the community that I grew up in, the traditional Jewish community, is that it was precisely when the Bible got to this part of the Bible that things got interesting, because we love parsing every word of the Bible for meaning, not just the fun stories or the Psalms, but even like civil law, agricultural practice, contract theory. And in fact, the Talmud has this wonderful image of heaven. It's thousands of years old where it describes not like a, a garden in paradise or a place up in the clouds with angels like flying around playing soothing music on the harp, but actually as an academy, a place of study. And the subjects of inquiry aren't just, you know, the meaning of existence or the justice of suffering, but actually everything from the biggest topics to the smallest ones. And beyond that, what's happening in the Talmud's image of the heavenly academy is, right, what's going on in the heavenly salon? Are people just sitting around in quiet contemplation? No, hard pass. In the Talmud's view, everybody's conversing, even arguing with each other. And actually, God is no exception. In fact, in the Talmud's description, God even loses some of the arguments. And I think to most people, that just sounds like ludicrously unhinged. Which is why, to me, it's one of the most interesting countercultural views of the afterlife in the history of world literature, because it sees heaven as this chaotic intellectual community, this wonderfully weird 
cacophonous place where we wrestle with ideas because heaven's not just a place of tranquility. It's not just a place to lay your burdens down. It's a place that's crackling with energy. And I love that, which brings us to the age old question that the prophets of the Bible asked and students and readers of the Bible have spent millennia trying to answer. And that is, can we build heaven here on earth? Is that possible? And it's an open question to be sure. But for my money, one of the most interesting experiments in crafting that heavenly academy is actually the brainchild of today's guest. She's the founder of the amazing intellectual community called Interintellect and one of the most fascinating people I've ever followed on Twitter. She's Anna Gat. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And what an introduction. You immediately bring to mind and Kundera's book, Immortality, which is, I think, his, his uh, masterpiece, although maybe not as famous as The Unbearable Lightness of Being, where heaven is expressed as the place where Goethe and Byron hang out and discuss things they didn't have a chance in real life to discuss. And I, I think that, you know, heaven on earth is the fact that you can talk to Goethe and Byron through their works. You actually have to get to heaven to see them talk to each other <laughs> and create the combination. <laughs> Although maybe AI will be able to do it. AI will be able to create scenarios where your intellectual heroes are able to have a debate. Um, I'm pretty sure Christopher Hitchens would win all of them. Uh, so just keep, <laughs> keep him out of the picture. Um, but I think this is how we, uh, how we try to recreate this. And, and the Jewish community probably knows a lot about bringing God down to, to your level. <laughs> <laughs> with, I, with with his willing um, to uh, to engage with, and the fact that we have the intellectual capacity to do that, every one of us, right? Every one of us has the uh, the capacity to do that. It's so amazing that you say that because I actually tell you, I was at a, a funeral. Um, let's start right there. <laughs> I was at a funeral like a bunch of months ago for a friend of mine's father, a guy by the name of Lance, and. Lance was eulogizing his father and he had recently lost his father-in-law and the image that he used to describe his hope for what's happening now to his father in the afterlife, which is one that's not kind of uncommon in, in sort of the, the Jewish tradition. And it just, it so resonated with me and it. And what you said just now reminded me of it was he said, you know, in life, they were both students of the tradition of the Bible, of the Talmud. And he said, I hope now that in heaven, they're able to study together as much as they want. And like, what an amazing image, right? And it speaks to that idea of, of Byron and Guta in heaven, studying with each other and learning together. It's so amazing. So I have to tell you, prior to this podcast, uh, while we were, uh, you know, while I was kind of waiting for the technical stuff, I was busy on inter intellect browsing for tickets to Zohar Atkins upcoming ask me anything which is going to be unbelievable Zohar Atkins friend of the pod amazing guest but Anna you're the founder of one of the most unusual exciting startups I've ever encountered and I feel like what you've built is the kind of thing that would be interesting particularly to listeners of this podcast so I want to explore the story of how you got there and like the intellectual underpinnings of the project but can you first say a little bit about what interintellect is because I imagine there are a bunch of people who are listening literally right now who aren't yet familiar with interintellect but are right in your target demo so what is interintellect what's the short version oh yes let's start with the sales uh, so guys <laughs> go to interintellect.com and enter a world of online salons hosted by the most well-known intellectuals in the world, but also up-and-coming talents uh, from all walks of life, everywhere in the world, on a variety of topics, basically any topic imaginable. 
um, my big bet and my big experiment here was to create a place where every conversation can be good, even on the internet. And I think we've succeeded doing this. Uh, you go and you pick anything from engineering to philosophy, mathematics to psychology, the arts, the environment, self-help, uh, religion, um, and you enter a room full of lovely people dedicated to patient, non-political, open-minded discussion. You will have a wonderful host to look after you, or you are that wonderful host. And, you know, you can recreate the kind of intellectual community that many of us wish were a daily occurrence in our lives and not just a special rarity. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, even were universities today functioning properly and normally, which by and large, they're not. But even if they were, and, you know, you could go to university and get this kind of experience, it would cost you a jillion, gajillion dollars. So with Interintellect, for the cost of like, two kosher slices of pizza, which is more than two non-kosher slices of pizza, but it's still very little, you can get access to some of the most brilliant minds of our generation in company with people who are just there and eager to learn. It is so fun. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I want to transition to you, actually. Like One of the biographical details that I didn't know about you before I began preparing for this episode was that you are Hungarian. You grew up in Budapest. And funnily enough, I happen to have, in the past couple of years, as close friends of mine will know, I've become really like deeply interested in the just extraordinary intellectual creativity that took place in the Hungarian Jewish community, especially like the late 18th century through World War II. There's this really distinctive, conceptually innovative tradition that emerges there. There are luminaries like Rabbi Moses Sofer, Rabbi Moses Schick that, that are, you know, household names kind of amongst the traditional higher echelons of the Jewish learning community, but definitely aren't household names yet in the wider society. But they're legendary amongst like Jewish jurists, philosophers, theologians today. So it's definitely got me thinking about Hungary as a place and an intellectual milieu. So how did Hungary shape your own intellectual journey? That's a wonderful question. First of all, I'm in New York City right now. So if you have good tips on where to get kosher pizza, I don't think I've had kosher pizza since I, I, I've been to Israel the last time. So I would love to, I would love to try. Oh, Sa Saba's Pizza. That's where I hang out with Zohar Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> send, me, send me an email. I want to go. This is really interesting. And, and of course, you know, this would probably be a different uh, podcast episode, but the Hungarian Jewry has an incredible and very special history. Joseph II, I think in 1788, passed a law that liberated the Hungarian Jewry from the conditions that many other, you know, areas of Eastern Europe uh, subjected their Jewry to, which mean, meant that they could own land and, and practice a far bigger variety of professions than people to their east, which led to a, a really kind of buzzing, blooming Jewish bourgeoisie um, or, or the appearance of, of the Jewish bourgeoisie in, in Hungary, from which I am myself a descendant. I have a Jewish peasantry and also a bourgeoisie in my bloodline. Not that it mattered uh, throughout uh, the first half of the 20th century, but uh, it may be an important distinction in, in other areas. Ah, wow, people love yeah, us. Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I was joking, like, is it like, like my, my ancestors kind of looked at the map and they were like, let's find the place. There's no sea, good, check. No mountains, check. Terrible language, check. They hate us, check. Let's move there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, probably could have gone anywhere. Like, why go there? Hungary is lovely. We have rivers. 
Yay. But um, (laughs) of course, you know, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy created its own weird federalist internal market of arts and ideas and science and and, and linguistic variety. Most of the things that we we love about the Judenwissenschaft of uh, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy are more about the Austro-Hungarian monarchy than particularities of the Jewish community. It's just that if you allow for diversity, if you allow for learning, if you allow for, you know, self-sustaining cities to flourish, then and surprise, people will laugh hanging out together and they will invent things and write symphonies and, and go to send their kids to university. You know, in many ways, I uh, my worldview has been informed by that cosmopolitanism. Even though we could look at it from a kind of teleological uh, perspective and say that, oh, it led to the Second World War or the First World War and so it was bad. I don't think so. I don't think that hope and openness and cosmopolitanism always leads to its dialectical opposite. Sometimes it just leads to a better world. I think it was more that that kind of openness and cosmopolitanism wasn't quickly enough extended to enough people to clean up some of the darker remnants of the feudal past um, in Eastern Europe. And I remember watching Mikhail Haneke's film, The White Ribbon, which is not explicitly about why Nazism came to be, but it's subliminally about that. And I remember watching that movie and suddenly I understood my continent. And that I really recommend everybody uh, who watches Mikhail Haneke's uh, Palme d'Or winning movie, The White Ribbon, because you will understand where that whole thing in it. Because you don't understand, like you're there and you're like, oh, but you guys have the Burgtheater and you have the Wiener Schnitzel and you have the Haydn. Why kill each other? You don't understand. It doesn't make sense. But if you go to between the cracks of how people actually lived and how unequal that society was and how we only hear about the good stuff now. I think you suddenly understand the whole thing, not just, you know, the right-wing totalitarian movements, but also the left-wing ones, right? We like to forget that the first two decades of the the 20th century in Europe had so extremities on, on both ends, right? There were a lot of communists and a lot of workers deeply dissatisfied with the conditions in which they were forced to live. It's kind of a geopolitical accident that different geographies weaponized different extremities. Aaron Sabarium has written a great article about this. It's just about how how radical on on all different ends of the spectrum Western and Central Europe were during this period. And I want to come back to cosmopolitanism in a moment. I'm totally this 90s kids, you know, like they say like, oh, the 90s globalist <laughs> um, ideal failed. No, I was on this flight from Lisbon to Miami. They, they have the safety video and for every airline, it's a bit different. And Tap Portugal's safety video is like people from all languages and colors saying one line, like <laughs> buckle your seatbelt and jump out of the plane on the left. And it just touches me at a level that only I think people born in the early 80s will be touched by a video where people from like different colors and different languages will say the same things like that's um, we have been globalism built. Yeah. So I, and I actually want to zoom in right there. That's a perfect transition point because interintellect started as an idea, which Tyler Cowen, who's one of my favorite contemporary thinker doers uh, and is the absolute bomb. Uh, he called it the best attempt I know of to formulate a new ideology. And I remember reading the essay on medium where you laid out 
kind of this ideology. And I remember being fascinated by it because usually when you think of like countercultural ideologies that are organized around the pursuit of knowledge, you know, the Enlightenment kind of trained us to expect like, or the pop version of the Enlightenment kind of trained us to expect like freewheeling, lonely geniuses gazing at the stars, totally disconnected from everybody else, Galileo, or totally disconnected from society like David Hume. But your experiment in the pursuit of knowledge began somewhere else entirely. It began with community, something that which resonated with my own kind of very traditional and, you know, instincts, but that emerged, I think, from a very unique place. So why did the idea of community speak to you? And how did you go about translating that into an intellectual movement? The first couple of projects that I have ever worked on beyond film and literature and, and journalism that were my original areas, starting in 2013, have been around women's rights and I will say free speech, but more free speech from the left. I'm more on the left and I know that free speech today means something else in America. And I was I was working at projects and conferences at university when I was back in Budapest. I immigrated in 2013, so this was right on the eve of that, kind of going back to the exodus. Um, it was right on the eve of before I left. And also right before I left, I, I co-founded Hungary's then leading women's rights platform. Um, and the whole idea was that most people are feminists, even if they don't know it. So why don't we bring together very different aspects of the problem on the same stage? So the very academic person, the very activist person, and a completely random person from the street and just like ask her about her life and how much help she gets at home or how much money she makes and what are what are her problems. And I didn't really expect that to go super well, but it went really well. This was at the time when, you know, Beyonce first put feminists on her stage and stuff like that. And before the total moral collapse of my <laughs> my country. Um, this was kind of the last moment when we... Um, no biggie. No biggie, yeah. That was a kind of the last moment when there was a bit of hope and and, and I think I kind of gained a lot of self-confidence from that. And not self-confidence like, oh, I'm Anna and I can do things. More like, oh, people are actually like really nice and they want to talk to each other, <laughs> you know, which was not evident to me before that. But I immigrated. I had a lot of personal things going on between 2013 and 2016. I was trying to kind of find my ground in London as a kind of overeducated immigrant that nobody wanted to hire. And I worked in customer service. I worked a variety of different weird jobs and just trying to get by. You know, coming from this relatively privileged background, I restarted my life from a suitcase with two books. And then in 2016, I started feeling this weird déjà vu, you know, with the um, British and the American developments. And, and I was like, hell no. Like, I'm not going to sit here and see this again. Like, where do I go? Like, I can, like do I go to Mars? Like, don't mess up the whole world for me, please. And, and then I felt that, okay, like, this is the moment when my personal concerns, like, don't matter at all. Like, they do matter to me, but there are bigger problems now in the world. And, and I had to figure out, how can I contribute? If I had already seen this because I'm Hungarian, how can I use that very reasonable sense of panic right now to fuel me to to help people stop repeating things that are already happening in other parts of the world. And, and I basically sat down and looked at my CV like, what can I do? Like linguistics and philosophy and terribly paying jobs. Okay, so what should, what should we do? And I started my first company. There was an AI company trying to create tools to improve language between speakers in mess messaging apps and, and on forums. And it was very much a self-protective tool. So I kind of projected my own panic at the time into what I was building, which is actually quite far from my real nature. 
But I thought maybe I'm weird, you know, and maybe most people are afraid and I have to create tools for them to protect themselves. And it took me a couple of years to get to where Interinsect is, which is that, no, I was right. I don't have to build protective gear. I just need to create good spaces with good incentives and then people will come and people are lovely and they will have a good time, right? And it took me a, a long time, which I think is because of the zeitgeist and because of the, the discourse at the time. Nowadays, I think that given the right conditions... Conversations are amazing, right? I mean, look at your podcast. You call complete strangers to talk to you for hours that you often have never spoken to before. But, you know, they are invited politely and they know why they are there and they come on your podcast and they you have a lovely conversation with them. So Interinsect is that at scale, right? I think of it as like this huge scam that nobody has <laughs> called me on yet, <laughs> you know? But you know what? If I'm thinking like from a, a market fit perspective about Interintellect. So here's why I find it so exciting, even purely like tactically, because I find myself often browsing through Interintellect. I actually first came into contact with it because previous guest uh, on the podcast, one of, one of our very popular episodes, Tommy Collison, has this incredible great books uh, salon that he leads with David McDougall. Right, David McDougall, right. And it's fabulous. And I remember seeing that he was doing it on, on Interintellect and then kind of browsing through the rest of the course offerings or, or the class offerings, salon offerings, and thinking to myself, I literally, I, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I want to take every single one of these. And I thought to myself at a certain point, okay, so now imagine that I'm like a curious or aspirational young 20-something-year-old, or or maybe even like just on the cusp of being 20. And I want to build a life for myself. So I could enroll in extremely expensive university or whatever it is, take on a lot of student debt, or I could, or if I'm lucky enough not to take on student debt, at least cost somebody, you know, a loved one, maybe a parent, a lot of money, and get something of potentially dubious value in exchange for that. Or I could go to a software engineering boot camp and become a software engineer after, you know, what, 12 weeks and get a great job and take as many inter-intellect salons as I could possibly desire for the cost of what would be like, what, one week at NYU? I could take like four years worth of, of salons. So why would I ever do anything other than that? So I guess from a from a market standpoint, do you see inter-intellect as like competing or like market correcting like higher education? This is super interesting. And, and, and to start with the community question, I think there's a reason why immigrants rule in, in entertainment. Immigrants are quite lonely, right? If you're an immigrant, and even an immigrant within the US, for instance, like you can travel farther within the US than, you know, most European immigrants do between countries, right? You can move to a completely different climate and, and, and time zone within the US or Australia or Canada or Brazil, India. Anybody who has had to leave at some point, going back to the exodus and rebuild a community somewhere else, starts with the laws, right? And when you start with the laws, you're deep in systems theory. You're thinking, how do communities work? What are the foundational principles? And I think most people who are immigrants or have experienced being an outsider understand the value of community more because we don't take it for granted. We have had to either build one at some point or participate in the building of, of one. And I think, you know, the reason why interintellect has always been a very community-focused endeavor comes from my experience as an immigrant and many other members' experiences as third culture kids, immigrants, or second generation immigrants, people who don't take community for granted. It's not invisible to them. 
it's something that is a construct in the good sense of, of the word where anybody can participate, anybody can start a community. And then given the incentives, the laws, the principles are right, that will flourish. The university question. I am kind of bullish on universities. I don't know, maybe I'm a snob. I really believe like Oxford is the most beautiful place in the world. I think there is something about moving into a different real estate for the purpose of learning, where only other people who learn there and or teach there live. Because you'll never have as much time to read and immerse yourself in research and thinking as you do at university. Like I have never since then read as many books as I did at university. Like I, I would be deluding myself. It's a tragedy in the US that it's such a class question and it's so unaffordable to most people. It should be, you know, based on probably different considerations and, and principles than whether your great grandfather's name is on the library, right? I think that's maybe not the best way to select the best and the brightest. And probably in a couple of decades, we'll see the effects of that on the inventiveness of, I don't know, the educated classes in the US or something similar. That said, it has always been my goal with Interintellect to create something that is affordable. When somebody says I'm an elitist, I'm like, yeah, but I teach people Aristotle for 10 bucks. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, and we have a student fellowship and we are building a new product within Interinsect and the free events are coming too. So there will be, it will be even more affordable. But I think even more important than that, if you think that US education is incredibly discriminating, then look at being an educator in the US academic system. Like how insanely difficult it is to build a career, to get tenure, You know, I think there, there's been a research that I think 80% of U.S. professors come from three Ivy League schools. Like, unless you went to Yale or Harvard, you will never be a well-paid professor in the U.S. in the old system. And, I mean, I want more professors. If I had kids going into the U.S. academic system, I would want them to learn from a wider variety of people because I would want them to be exposed to knowledge from a wider variety of people, period. Like, there's no, like, it's hard to argue with this, right? And so it was very important to me from day one to build a platform where Tommy Collison can make money. Like, you have a good idea. You've read these books. You will allocate time to teach the public. You should make money with this. And we have hosts making, like, thousands of dollars, right? Most people don't become public intellectuals or public educators because they don't have time. Why don't they have time? Because they can't afford having time. What do you take away time from? Your children or your work? And then, you're, then you don't pay rent. It's only a very small slice of society who are either extremely well off or probably insane who will say, I will just like not make money. For most people, like you have to be paid for your time. And I'm like, okay, so let's make the public pay for your, it's like, it's so simple to me. It's a kind of a no brainer. This is like, it reminds me of Tyler Cowen's book in praise of commercial culture, right? Like there, there's an economic element to getting the kind of public intellectual culture that we want. Right. And in other words, that's what interintellect really helps facilitate in an amazing way. I want to kind of transition to an element of interintellect that also really, really fascinates me. And that's that we, we live in a world 
in which kind of elite culture, broadly speaking, is dominated by, I think, like a particular strand of like scientific materialism. And as you'd expect, kind of the greatest proponents of this worldview have like a very low tolerance for weirdness. And when they encounter weird things, they feel like the absolute need to explain them in material terms. It's just like the natural outcome of the laws of physics or the result of random chance or what have you. Now, because I am a human being who's lived on this planet for more than five seconds, like I just find this to be a super like implausible way of approaching the world. Like this is a pretty weird place that we live in and that's okay. And that's what I love about your approach to learning and thinking because it begins by leaning into weirdness. So your essay on the interintellect begins with you saying, everybody thinks their life is weird. Most of us are right. So how do you personally build a theory of weirdness without running into the pitfalls of materialism? Oh, I love this. And this is such a timely question to me. You don't even know about this, Ari. Because Tyler, I think, thinks, Tyler Cowen thinks that I'm this weirdo who's trying to be a normie. (laughs) And every time I talk to him, I kind of live with the uh, vague sense that he's waiting for me to like fully embrace my own weirdo-ness. But like, because I grew up in show business, I think I have kind of moral qualms about my own weirdness because I have witnessed so many people combining immorality and the weirdness or using their weirdness as an excuse for immoral behavior. And I'm really worried. I don't, I want to live in a moral way. So I think sometimes my knee-jerk reaction is to try to be more normy in an attempt to try to be more moral. But probably these are very separate things and I could approach them very separately. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, Zena hits in her wonderful book, Lost in Thought. Also friend of the pod, previous guest, incredible episode. She is my, my soul <laughs> sister. She, she writes about the, um, the shared dignity that shines through intellectual practice. And to me, dignity is kind of a key term and something that I always uh, try to bear in mind, that how do we come together in our shared dignity? So if if we look at weirdness or if we use weirdness as a stand-in for being alone with something, then, you know, you might want to strip yourself of your weirdness when you come together in the shared experience with other people. But if we use weirdness as a stand-in or a synonym for your idiosyncrasies or quirks that make you you, then I also want to create a space when, where that weirdness can be celebrated. So I would say, take the part of your weirdness that brings you together with other people and celebrate it. And let's try to assuage the parts that would make you feel alone or not understood in the in wider society. So one of my favorite extremely weird things that you believe and that I so love. It's one of my favorite things that you've written about. I mean, you, you told me that this is a dangerous Bible podcast, so bring it on. <laughs> bring it on. Well, speaking of which, brrrum, you've thought a lot about the importance of cultivating what you've called a sense of grace, right? Of living under a sense of benevolence, a feeling of wholeness. And in fact, this is some of your writing I've enjoyed the most because it's really hauntingly beautiful. I think most people are used to the vocabulary of grace. If they do ever encounter it in public life, it's typically emerging from some very like overtly systematic theological places, particularly in the world of Christianity. And it's not typically a word that you encounter outside of that context. And in fact, one of the only places I can think of where I've encountered it outside of that context is in the writing of one Anna Gat. So can you unpack what you mean by this? It's interesting. Now that you were talking about this, I I was thinking how, I mean, in the English language, while grace can be, you know, used only in a theological or maybe in a legal sense, 
you do have you know linguistic versions that are commonplace and and, and used colloquially um gracious gratitude or grateful i mean i've had a really weird religious journey in my life and and i often feel that you know as you shed all these layers of skin sometimes only grace remains and maybe that's a good thing you know holocaust surviving family that has also been you know we had the communist generation we had the hedonistic boomer generation you know it's a in that sense it's a typical eastern european intelligentsia family i converted to catholicism when i was 12 i went to a catholic school i had a very strongly theology focused couple of years in my life i still have a very monkish thing about myself and and i like to embrace that element then i had a very kind of comparative religion uh, phase when i was reading uh, a lot of like eastern philosophies and, and i also went through a kind of jewish revival in my life i did a taglit i went to shomer i was i learned hebrew i did a major kind of holocaust research within my own family which was literally like i would go up to old people and be like hey you look like you're about to die let's talk uh, <laughs> By the way, a highly recommended practice. Seriously. It's wonderful. Also, if the Eastern European part was very, very moving and beautiful and just some crazy, crazy stories in my family. I have a one great aunt who even wrote a book about her experiences, Alice Weissgruner, a beautiful book, bilingual Hungarian Hebrew book uh, published in Israel with the cover art by Claire Szilard, the great painter. The Israeli part of the research went great because everybody always gave me a hundred dollars. <laughs> I was like, I love it here. Uh, <laughs> and except, and these old ladies, and some of the hundred dollars were like rolled up, and I was like, Auntie, what's going on here? <laughs> anyway, um, it was it was a lot of fun. And then I had a militant atheist phase um, when I was rejecting everything that was non-material, and I was very angry. And still today, I look at the new atheists and think, you guys are angry. Like, this is an angry movement. You should be more chill. That said, of course, there are fundamentalist, um, you know, movements within religion that I also deeply reject and I think are very toxic and, and, and should be debated. And then I kind of arrived at this weird, my own personal belief in in, in grace and, and in, I don't know, my own version of inhale, exhale, community, withdrawal, and, and managing that for myself. And I hope to be in be kind of aligned with my own grace myself at most times and to be able to share it. What I love about the idea of grace is that it's an infinite value that you have an infinite amount of and you can even create more. So it doesn't make logical sense. You can literally go like one person with the grace in them in that moment with the light shining can go into a community of hundreds or thousands of people and just like spread that grace in the room. It's much easier to spread the good than the bad, which is, no, it's not true. It's fear spreads fastest. Fear is like fire and we have a lot of animal instincts to react very strongly to fear. But I think that destructiveness, for instance, doesn't spread very easily. If it did, you would not need to be rigorously trained to go to war. Like people actually have to be trained to be destructive in a systematic way. But to spread something good, grace is very easy. Um, any any good song can do it in two minutes. And to me, that's the biggest mystery of human nature and something that inspires me every day to do my job. That actually is a perfect transition point because you have an ongoing series on interintellect called A History of War. And it's a topic that I find unbelievably compelling. But I'm curious, like, what drew you to that topic? I think you did History of Love first, right? I actually alternate. So I finished History of War in September and now I started History of Love. 
So I always do one after the other. In uh, yeah, History of War, we look at genocide. And History of uh, Love, we read love poems and and look at pornography. It's great. Both are 18 plus. <laughs> I mean, it's not pornography. You know, it's in the Bible. Um, but pe people still blush when they read it up. I'm serious. People totally blush when they read Song of Songs at my salons. And I don't know. I became interested in war when I was around 12. I loved history. I wanted to be a historian. But my real interest, I think stemmed from my great fear during the war in the former Yugoslavia. So I was in Budapest and the, in the country next door, Serbia, this horrifying war started raging when I was eight. And even though I was explained that it could not spread over because it was a local problem and we didn't have the, you know, ethnic or historical or socio-structural uh, things in place for us to be implicated in any way. You know, the Americans did have a base in Hungary, in Tassar, where um, you know, NATO and American uh, forces were stationed. And I was really scared. That was the first time in my life when, his, when war became not a historic thing, but something that could happen to you. And that made me look into the history of my environment and the history of my family and my country more more closely. And I started watching films and reading books on the Holocaust and Second World War. And, and then I went more deeply into the, the, the psychology of war. And I do think, you know, people sometimes ask me like, oh, how can you run this company with all these very peaceful, non-political conversations in the times of polarization and toxicity. I, I say that, you know, it's multiple things. On the one hand, I'm a woman, I'm a foreigner, I'm, there's a feeling of, of neutrality around me, which enables me to ask questions that only outsiders can ask. On the other hand, like, I understand war. I think peace is kept <laughs> by armies. And you have to understand aggression and what might propel somebody to be aggressive in order to be able to effectively keep up peace. And interindict salons are peaceful and nothing ever happened across 1,100 events and 13,000 bookings. But I think people have a sense that should there be a problem, they would be look, looked after. It's not, you know, um, mindlessly naive, hyper agreeable space. It's a space of inquiry and, you know, nobody has ever been kicked out of an interintact salon, but we would kick out and hosts are trained and our code of conduct is structured in a way that should there be a transgression, our responsibility would be to defend everybody else in the room. Our code of conduct is incredibly loose and very flexible and kind of stretchy and a lot of things can be discussed. But if you cross a line, that would be a no-no. So it's, it's kind of a counterintuitive thing. People think that I'm some kind of a, you know, people meet me and, and they sometimes are surprised because they imagine some kind of, I don't know, Gandhi who will come in with the flowers in her hair. And, you know, <laughs> I'm a very disagreeable person who loves to read about war and maybe I'm the best person to build the most peaceful place on the internet. So podcasts, a famously non-visual medium. I can confirm, no flowers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what would need to happen to my brain to put a flower in my hair. Maybe I would just need to go to San Francisco. <laughs> exactly. What I find super interesting about the history of war, and particularly in light of your, your reflections earlier on cosmopolitanism, so... If you look in the ancient world, which is kind of my specialty, so if you look there, what you find are empires, the Assyrian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Hellenistic Empires, the Roman Empire. In other words, these are all societies that see conquest through war as a positive good to be pursued. And you can see this persist well into modernity. You have Christendom or the Islamic empires, which, you know, you can tell in one sense is a history of great battles. And in fact, many historians have done that. Now, if you're seeking a unified explanation for this, it's that these were all civilizations that believe 
believed in some way that truth was universal, right? But if truth is universal, well, then if you and I disagree, then that means that I have the truth and what you have is error. And if you're an error, then I have a responsibility to cure you of that error, which means I either have to convert you or conquer you. So what you might say is that the theory of of universal brotherhood, which is usually held out as like the solution to war, might end up being its cause. And yet in the one tradition in, in antiquity where you find a rejection of universalism in favor of particular stories, right, the Hebrew Bible. So that's the only case in the ancient world where you find an outright rejection of the ideology of conquest, right? So in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, the Bible puts very strict limits on the boundaries of ancient Israel. And any attempt to conquer beyond that is defined as as murder. So how do you work out that paradox in your own approach between between universalism and, and conquest? Do you see what I'm asking? I do. And this was something I was thinking about a lot when I was working on the AI company, uh, trying to manage escalation of conflict, that when it comes to polarization, you know, there, there are two ways it can go or three ways, right? Either you resolve your differences, usually by finding a third solution, as every mediator of divorced couples knows, or you, you actually find a an actual agreement to like disagree, like Belgium, right? Like you have the Flemish and the and the French, and they somehow I have no idea. I think they are just too lazy to start a civil war. Uh, <laughs> laziness is actually the best human quality on the grand scale, and this saves you from war every day. And the third third is aggression. You never think of Germany invading Poland as polarization, even though it's probably uh, you know a result of it. So that's something that I I was looking into, and in interintellect in many ways the third way. It's not trying to change existing political movements. It's trying to create a third. A third way is kind of a compromised expression in, in America, but, but an alternative. Like, okay, so you don't like the public arena? Come and, and join us in this other public arena that is... We're, we're starting from scratch and you can build it in a way that serves you. And we're here to help. Unbelievable. This is so fascinating. So my last question for you is, have you had a... I know this is like probably asking you to choose like a favorite child, but like, have you had a favorite interintellect salon uh, since you've started? Okay, I'm not going to choose one hosted by someone else because my hosts will kill me, and then my entire <laughs> my entire spiel on like nonviolence will collapse immediately. Um, <laughs> interintellect founder massacred by uh, the unhappy host that she didn't choose on uh, the Good Faith podcast as her favorite. So amongst the ones that I hosted. I, we had one in August 2020. The, the topic of discussion was uh, Road to Damascus Moments. I was at the time reading Carrère's uh, book, uh, Kingdom, which is about his conversion to Catholicism and crisis of faith. A um, beautiful book, and everybody should read who can tolerate French intellectual writing. And and I became curious on, you know, oh, just started researching at the time my own life and going back and, and journaling about my own metanoia experiences, you know, my a couple of epiphanies I had in my life and how they changed me, whether I'm just like post hoc, you know, interpreting them as breakthrough moments or were they actual, actually breakthrough moments. And whenever I'm on the fence uh, about something, I'm like, let's do an interintext zone about it because I don't know, right? That's the best way to go into a, an intern. I don't know. I have three competing opinions about this thing. Let's discuss. And what followed was an evening of 50 people coming together, bringing all of their conversion, metanoia, road to Damascus moments, finding faith, losing faith, falling in love, falling out of love, 
you know, becoming a patriot, becoming disillusioned. And I, I'm quite convinced that actually these are the most important moments of your life. I love it. And, oh. and, and just, uh, you know, I still sometimes think back to, to this moment and, and I, it was fantastic. It was, and there was that one guy who is a good friend who was actually on the road to Damascus when he had his road to Damascus moment because he was in the army. Oh, literally on the road to Damascus. That's amazing. He was there <laughs> and we were just like, okay, Sean, you won. Everybody, good night. You know, <laughs> That is un that is unbelievable. Uh, everybody, check out Interintellect. Pick your favorite one. Sign up. I I assure you, you will not be disappointed, and you'll go back for more. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was a joy. So, one of the great Jewish theologians of the last two hundred years, the late Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner has this wonderful scholarly poetic reflection on the purpose of creation, where he talks about creation as consisting of two elements, ichud and yichud, unity and individuality. Now, normally you'd think of those two things as mutually exclusive. Unity is all about community, while individuality is all about being totally unfettered. But Rabbi Hutner actually saw them as two sides of the same coin. Take Adam, the first created person in the book of Genesis. On the one hand, the fact that the human story begins with one person means that we're all equal. We all come from the same stock. So we humans are naturally drawn together and to each other. And at the same time, the fact that the human story begins with one person means that each individual is unique and capable of unique excellence. And one of the important things I've learned from Anna is how to put those two seemingly opposing, but in reality, complementary and harmonious aspects of the human condition into practice by creating unified communities around individual excellence and aspiration. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.